really warm welcome to episode 40 of Purposely Podcast with Masafa Ali, a former UN worker and refugee, filmmaker Jolene Hoff. They share their founder story with the Cesaru Learning Centre. Stuck in Indonesia after Australia stopped the boats and facing many years in limbo, they built a community and started a school which inspired a refugee education revolution. It's a story about friendship, connection and the power of community. And flashbacks, uh, of course, I remember uh, all those beautiful events that um, that happened, uh, we did and achieved uh, when I was working at the UN. But of course, also nightmares. Uh, still, I see nightmares, uh, Taliban chasing me, shooting at me, and I'm trying to run and hide. Uh, and all of these, these good and uh, bad memories are part of my life. And this is a life of refugee. sounds like something so small something so small this idea that they started a little school with two rooms but something bigger happened as well and and that was reclaiming this agency when my when my wife and I first met Mazafa it was obvious that and and and, and Hadim and and the others he was working with it was obvious that you know that they could do something that were highly capable very intelligent and they were able to do something and at that time they'd been writing very uh They've been trying to contact the UNHCR. We want to do something. We want to have an organization for refugees. We want to work with you to help refugees. Partner with you. Partner, you know, Thank but you. yeah, but 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 they were getting nowhere. You know, they were getting stonewalled, they were getting nothing. And 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 we understood that they weren't going to get anywhere, that this was not that the doors of the UNHCR weren't going to open up, that they were too complicated for a big organization like the UNHCR to deal with, and that's why we suggested, why don't you do something for yourself? Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Masafa Ali and Jolien Hoff. Welcome, guys. Hey, Mark. How are you? And tell me a bit about um, growing up and how you found yourself leaving Afghanistan and why. I was just a few months old when my father left uh, Afghanistan. I lived, uh, my father belongs to Orozgan province, which is uh, in the south of um, Afghanistan, but we belong to minority Hazara uh, ethnic. So historically, we have been persecuted for decades. Uh, and the last time we were persecuted in um, uh, 2001, uh, in January, when Taliban uh, drive into Hazara villages and they systematically kill thousands of Hazaras in Bamiyan and Mazar Sharif and other areas. So that was a genocidal attempt by the, um, uh, the Taliban. And uh, being Hazara means like you are minority religiously and you're minority from the ethnic background. So uh, my father had to leave from the same reasons in um, 1980s, he came to Pakistan. I grew up in Pakistan as refugee and I got education up to grade eight. Uh, and then I was helping my father then I returned in Afghanistan in 2004 
in the late 2004. I got a job in the UN because I was a football player and the UN football team needed a good football player to play with them because they Brilliant. were all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a turning point for me in my life because I got a chance to uh, see Afghanistan more deeply. My uh, ancestral land, uh, Bamiyan and uh, the central Afghanistan, and I was really shocked to see how beautiful it is. So I bought the first camera from my first salary uh, and I kept shooting and save, uh, sharing them on uh, then social media like MySpace or Orchid of those, those days. Wow, yeah, going back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't have Facebook or Twitter or anything. So yeah, that, that became a passion for me. Um, but I was also working as a human rights advocate and um, a political advisor to the UN uh, and having uh, uh, opportunities to travel in remote areas where uh, uh, even journalists didn't, didn't have uh, opportunity to go. So that was uh, an enlightening experience for me to see the real Afghanistan, the real Afghan people and uh, how they had suffered decades of civil war. So uh, in 2012, uh, my, in 2005, my car was hit by a landmine by Taliban. That was the first ever attack of the Taliban on the UN um, uh, personnel. I received threats from the commanders because uh, I was working on their disarmament uh, and reporting their human rights abuse. And then in last time uh, when I decided to leave Afghanistan was 2012 when Taliban stopped my car and I was sitting with my wife in the car and my daughter was very young. So I escaped, uh, like I, I, they did not recognize me. I work for the UN. So I escaped alive and came to Pakistan. So that was uh, late December, 2012. But in just a week later, we had, a very powerful bomb blast uh, in Pakistan where I lived. Uh, more than 100 people killed. Uh, two suicide attacker hit um, uh, my community members, Hazara community members in Quetta. And then after 40 days, there was another blast, 1000 kilogram of uh, explosive uh, was placed in a tanker and detonated in Hazara populated area in Quetta again. So this is uh, the blast uh, which is uh, shown briefly in the film uh, in which Khadim's school was uh, destroyed. So that was the time I decided that I cannot live in Afghanistan and I, the Pakistan situation is getting worse. I, I came to Indonesia with all my family members. Yeah. And I became a refugee again. And your daughter, a huge motivation to get out, I imagine. And that moment when you're sitting in the car, you, you, you thought you might lose your life at that moment? I was... In Afghanistan, when someone starts start working with the UN or the government officials, with the army or the coalition forces, there is always a chance of uh, being hit by, by the Taliban because these group of people are always considered uh, infidels and to be killed. Um, so when someone is working, he is ready and prepared for that moment because a landmine cannot give an opportunity to escape or it's just all by chance. I knew and we were trained how to become if in, the, in that situation. But I was more thinking deeply what happens to my family if I get killed? Who is going to take care of them in Afghanistan? What about her education? What about her future? Uh, who's go going to take care of my wife as a widow? 
So my father just recently died and I was also thinking about my mother and sister. So all these four women in Afghanistan, they would be extremely vulnerable. And uh, I was very sad uh, to see the situation uh, quite uh, different from the time when I started to work in the UN in 2005. So situation, uh, this, uh, uh, instead of getting better, uh, despite this international involvement, it was getting worse. So Taliban were more, uh, more visible, they were more uh, active, they were more brutal. And what I would see that the, the place where my car was stopped was the place where the elderly people and children were looking amusingly. What's going to happen next to this person if uh, the Taliban has stopped this car? So that was really painful for me because the, the Taliban had some kind of local support in that village where my car was stopped. So that was heartbreaking for me to see. And then I reached to this conclusion that I cannot live anymore because of my family. Uh, and I have to, I, it's not just me to save my life and go to Australia by boat, but it's all about my family. So that's why I came to, I risk everything and came to Indonesia without knowing that what will happen to us. But before leaving, I told my family that we might uh, be starving in Indonesia. We might stay on the road. So are you ready to go there? Mm. We might stay there for years. So we were mentally ready that we are going to uh, be refugees and it's going to be a tough journey. So that trauma when your car got bombed and that's a lot in one question, but. <laughs> I think I would say I was born three times. Uh, I was born in Afghanistan in 1986 and then I was again uh, reborn in 2004 when I returned uh, where uh, I found my real self uh, when I saw my real people and how they suffered. Uh, and then I was reborn um, in Indonesia as a, as a person, what we could do as a, as a community. So I definitely miss my country, which is the, the, uh, the ancestral uh, motherland for me. And I have deep connection with, with my place. Uh, my ancestors uh, sacrifices there, their lands were, uh, they were uh, uh, displaced uh, in, in that, uh, in that place. So I would definitely love to go there. Uh, and I think this is my dream to go and uh, uh, follow my forefathers and sisters footsteps and see uh, how they lived uh, in those villages. Unfortunately, I haven't seen that because of the Taliban threat. And I want to go there to document them. Uh, to to take pictures and that's in, in the back of my mind to return uh, with a project and to do something uh, for my people. But I can only go if the condition is uh, suitable and good. But uh, what I can see is that it's getting worse, unfortunately, and uh, I have to wait. Um, and flashbacks, uh, of course, I remember uh, all those beautiful events that, um, that happened, uh, we did and achieved uh, when I was working at the UN. But of course, also nightmares. Uh, still, I see nightmares, uh, Taliban chasing me, shooting at me, and I'm trying to run and hide. Uh, and all of these, these good and uh, bad memories are part of my life. And this is a life of refugee, um, I would say. 
it's it's quite normal i think not just only with me but uh, with uh, all refugees and the the trick is to live with these uh, with these memories and how do you how do you actually go about the process of getting out so you like for you, you flew out, did you? So like, and family went by boat or how did, how do you actually do that, Pete? But mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the borders are pretty fluid in uh, between Afghanistan and Pakistan. So uh, the Taliban, they, uh, uh, they freely travel between these two uh, countries. Uh, the Kuchis are there, the uh, Pashtun tribe they live uh, uh, across the borders, so it's pretty fluid. It's, it was easy for us to leave Afghanistan the next day. And yeah, the, the most precious thing for me is to leave Afghanistan was to take all my uh, documents and my photographs that I took throughout those years. So I hid them in my sleeping bag and put them in the luggage just not to get them damaged and be safe from Taliban if they capture. Mm. So I put it there and uh, crossed uh, Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan border and came to Pakistan uh, the next day. But uh, getting out of Pakistan was, um, was a huge uh, task. So I can tell you that uh, it's uh, money does the work. Uh, we got fake documents from Pakistan. For example, my daughter uh, was, uh, was registered as a boy <laughs> mistakenly. And uh, throughout uh, the journey when we le left Pakistan, came to uh, Malaysia and from Malaysia to Indonesia in the airport, sh she was a boy uh, in the documents. And we were just keep wearing her uh, boy's uh, uh, clothes. And time when we were um, we were going through the checks and the uh, immigration system, we were very scared. What will happen to us? Can we could be arrested? This you arrive in this refugee camp. Is that the best way of describing it? Mm -hmm. um, actually, it was not a refugee camp. Um, uh, Indonesia's refugee system is that refugees can live with local communities. So there are detention centers and they were pretty much running by the Australian government funded by the Australian government to International Organization for Migration. Uh, and they kept those refugees who tried to catch boat and they were arrested on the way. So they would be put in those detention centers. But the rest of the refugees would live uh, quite like independently. They could rent a house and live um, their own. So we ended up being one of those refugees. Um, uh, I borrowed some money from my friend uh, and we rent a house in Chisarwa. So for us, it was not kind of uh, being in the, Indonesia was not uh, uh, under threat, but we, to be honest, we felt more secure than Afghanistan and Pakistan. We just observed uh, the extremist of the extremist shapes of violence uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And Indonesia compared to these countries were very peaceful and calm. So we found uh, local Indonesian people very friendly, uh, easily to communicate with them, even though we could not speak Bahasa Indonesia, but we could tell them what we need and uh, they would re respond with smile, which was really, uh, nice for us, but uh, 
I would say rather than uh, that, that fear, uh, the, the fear ruled uh, uh, over the refugee community before we started that school. Uh, there were a lot of rumors that uh, refugees are not allowed to work. Yeah, it's Chisarwa is uh, a town in West Java, Indonesia, where uh, about four to 5,000 refugees live currently, and previously the same amount of uh, refugees lived. Um, we, we, this town is about 70 uh, kilometers away from Jakarta. So previously this town was used as a place to catch boat and come to Australia by refugees. But in 2014, Australia, uh, Australia instigated its uh, policy to stop boats. And uh, they put all those uh, refugees who came by boat to Australia into Manus and Nauru offshore detention centers. So what happened, uh, refugees were stuck in Indonesia. So I was one of those refugees who were stuck. Uh, my intention was not to catch boat and come to Australia, but I was, uh, I, because when I arrived in Indonesia in 2013, I had just $200 left in my pocket when I arrived uh, in the airport. And I was living in Indonesia with my eight family members, with my wife and mother, brother, uh, my daughter, sister. So uh, we knew that we have to live in uh, Indonesia and my daughter was growing up uh, and the place where I was living, there were about um, 14 uh, refugee children living in the same street. So they didn't have any school to go. And uh, twice my daughter was hit by a motorbike while uh, she was playing outside and then I was thinking what if they could go to school. She would play in the streets and um, Julian is sitting here with me uh, so they gave us the first um, first idea to do something and uh, we had this intention to do something good we had some good ideas uh, we had good mentors um, in Indonesia, like this journey was very tough for us as a refugee, but we found incredibly amazing friends. So our mentors taught us about uh, harmony, being calm, not panicking, um, uh, be friends and helping each other. So she was incredibly well to form us uh, into a, 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 a group of people uh, to, to help and support each other and, and think about solutions rather than uh, waiting for someone to help. And then we got Julian and his family that they promised whatever we do, they will be supporting us. So because I had been working in the UN for seven years in Afghanistan, uh, I was always curious how long they can support us because they are experts in uh, Indonesia, they could leave. And if we start doing something and all of a sudden we stop receiving that support from one source, so we might uh, suffer again. So we cannot give false hopes to the community. You're, like You're talking about me and Car <laughs> Caroline and I, yeah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, they promised to, to pay and continue paying us for the rent of a school. And that's where we... Um, we started the first school of refugees, led by refugees and run by refugees in Indonesia. So the best thing came, uh, a lot of good things came out of that school. And one of that, the best thing was that the, the power of women we saw, those women in Afghanistan and Pakistan, 
they are living or in the fringes of the decision-making processes uh, in, in, in our society, but they, uh, they became leaders. They became the teachers of, of uh, that school. In one week, we had seven female teachers because male teachers, they refused to teach because there was a risk lying. Uh, they thought they could be arrested and refugees were not allowed to work. And they thought this is kind of a work. And if they, the authorities uh, find them working in Indonesia, so they could be arrested and then they could be deported. So they wouldn't risk that, that, that status, refugee status. Yeah. And then women, uh, they all became, they took that risk and became teachers. Yeah. And just for context, so um, Jolien, you were there um, doing we work and filmmaking? That's right. Yeah. We were in Jakarta and uh, living in Jakarta and Australia stopped the boats. And I, I, I realised I'd never met a refugee in my life. For 20 years, they'd been a massive <laughs> story in Australia, in the media. And you know, I always felt mm. that Australia could do much better. But I'd never met a refugee. So I wanted to know who they were and where they came from and what they were going to do now. So I, I kind of looked online, worked out where they were. And one day I drove up the hill, this very uh, fateful journey and took a very random left-hand turn in Chisarua, down the bend or across the bridge, round this fork in the road. And then we're coming around another bend and the Indonesian driver said, there, that's a refugee. So I got out of the car and met this man, he was Hassan. And it turned out he was Mazafa's cousin. So very quickly after that, I met Mazafa we became friends and that's that's how he we became friends through our his photography and my filmmaking and another young man Hadim had been filming on his uh mobile phone so we kind of the three of us kind of connected through our creative work and 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 became friends and yeah I, I also just Fantastic. before we go on it Mazafa makes it sound like Caroline and I you know paid all this money to start a school actually that the original we paid was $200 just for Mazafa and his friends to rent a, a small room, two small rooms. So the original commitment was just $200 a month. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like, we're like, yeah, whatever you want, go and do it. Uh, we, we said, well, here's $200 and, um, and a month and we'll keep paying it. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, and it, was, and it was a huge success. And very sh soon after, after about three months, we realized that they needed a bigger space because they, in a week they had a waiting list of, of, of 50 kids. And um, that was so incredibly organized up there that we, that I came back to Australia and we got started to get some more supporters in to rent a bigger building, which is where the school wonderful. is. Wonderful. Yeah. And so were you, and so the same with using um, Kadim's, uh, who was using, you know, creating footage on his phone and also your filmmaking, you created or, uh, a staging post, the film, which I've I've watched the 15 minutes of. Um, yeah. I think it's a longer version as well, isn't there, which I haven't watched yet. Yeah, there's a full feature film uh, from the staging post, but that kind of came a lot later. All, a lot of things kind of came later. The original $200 was for two small rooms, which then after a, few, a very few weeks, we realised we needed a bigger space. So we found, a, a or they found, a, the community found a bigger space. With Hadim's films, we just started making short films and putting them on YouTube. And especially Hadim's original footage did incredibly well, like got 100,000 views in Afghanistan, Australia, Indonesia. So the, the, those, those original little short 
very humble uh, short films. That's what I used to kind of show people what was happening in Indonesia. And they became very powerful to, because people could see what was happening. They could see kids going to school. They could see the refugee teachers learning how to teach basically. Um, and they could see that it was all, all very real. So they were very powerful in helping to raise the money. And then later on, probably about after about three years or four years of filming, uh, over time, we, we, we eventually put together the Staging Post feature documentary. Mm. Mm. There's, there's, real, there's moments in that which stood out for me. So Hadim talked about kind of incredulous mm -hmm. that this woman had to ask her mum's permission before she stayed and helped the refugees because, you know, refugees are dangerous. And you could just see it as like, incredulous. It's like, I'm not, I'm not dangerous. The people I live with are not dangerous. You know, we we found ourselves in this position, and I think the other moment was around. He talks about the lack of control, um, yeah. so just not not having control over his life, and it's about other people making decisions. The lack of control and waiting for other people to make decisions for the hardest things. Yeah, that's one of uh, his spot on uh, with with this observation in the film. Um, once a person leaves his country of origin and becomes refugee, so he, when he gives away his childhood memories uh, or, or culture and uh, belongings, so he also gives away the power of life, uh, how he can live his, uh, his life and how he would like to live his life and what would be his destination. And uh, this powerlessness is a huge dilemma. Uh, for example, uh, Hadim, his whole family is living in Australia and he wanted to come to Australia. UNHCR sent his uh, application to Australia, but he was rejected because his brother came by boat. Uh, and uh, eventually he was sent to USA, which uh, he never thought to go and live. So an underage uh, uh, young man, he comes to Indonesia because um, he wants to reunite with his family and then eventually he ends up in the USA. So he has to build all his life in a place with no uh, perception, no idea how to live. Yeah, so that's one, one, one thing that the agency is taken away from refugees, but uh, by, the, by, by the system. But still agencies there, uh, there are some some issues that refugees can deal with those issues uh, it, it, it it's their skills it's their uh, social uh, uh, social capital they have uh, from from the same culture from the knowledge they have how they can build communities in in the middle of nowhere uh, in 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 a cultural context where they don't belong how they negotiate their identities how they uh, how they feel they are empowered how they feel they are useful so that's what it happened in, in Chisarwa, where some young um, educated um, uh, people from Afghanistan, Pakistan and uh, other countries, they come together and they come together on the same purpose of education, but they do more than education for their community. It's kind of, so, of psychosocial support, it's kind of mentorship, it's kind of um, mutual support and helping each other. So incredible things happen uh, always for me uh, in the middle of um, disaster. 
in the yeah, place and we, we can hundred percent happen. And there's a great moment on that very very thing. It's there's a sort of and when I was watching there you talk about to camera. Um, you also get up and talk to others in the community, and you sort of take control and you kind of go, okay, we can't necessarily decide when we leave. Um, or what comes next, but actually what we can control is um, or empower ourselves to take control of the situation. And part of that was the, the learning centre mm. um, from what I could see. And, and you just really, I thought, a great uh, speech to the community, um, <laughs> kind of see, almost seizing control, which that looked like, um, and which is fantastic. So kind of taking the power back, I guess. Is that how it felt to you? That, that was, I was inspired from um, an event in Afghanistan when I was working uh, with uh, my human rights office, uh, officer in the UN and we went to a prison. So apart from describing all, um, all the rights of, of those prisoners in the prison in Afghanistan, we also talked about their right for education. So we were also working on uh, Millennium Development Goals at uh, that time, and education was one part of uh, the, the goal. Uh, so now it's called Sustainable Deve Deve Development Goals. So I knew that education is the right of everyone, and every country is, is obliged or responsible to provide education for its uh, people. So education is not a crime. Fortunately, I saw we had teachers. We had educated people who had worked in uh, uh, in Afghanistan they had were uh, they had experience of working with aid agencies so we thought why not they step in in this situation and start helping each other so th that was incredibly helpful for us um, to to have that that we spent actually from our own pocket to rent a sound system uh, to bring people together and uh, then announce that we have all these components uh, that, that we actually need. And they come for free and you are one of those uh, components and be, be our teachers, be our management mm. team, be our uh, finance guy and uh, buy um, supplies for the students. So we had some really good response after that um, event. And actually that was the first, uh, first formal gathering of refugees uh, for for years because refugees uh, thought they are not allowed to come together and uh, socialize because that could pose threat to the local communities. Jolien, switching to you, like you you said at the start, you you know you never met a refugee, and how has this whole experience for you changed you changed things for you and your wife? Like, are you a different person now than? Well, now I know hundreds, if not thousands, of refugees. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously incredibly lucky to meet Mazafa, who, you know, it's, it's obvious from the last 20 minutes of what a remarkable individual he is. But there's also many others uh, who are quite amazing and, 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 and fun, you know, people to be around and resilient and inspirational. Um, so... You, you know, that little journey up the road has really been uh, a kind of the journey of my life, really, um, has really kind of changed the direction of my life. And it, it, it's been, uh, well, it's been a fantastic opportunity. But the, the, real, the real thing that's in this story that I think makes it incredibly unique, and 
I've, I've, I've been around aid and development and I've lived around Nigeria and Indonesia and West Africa and, and, and been around the UN and these kind of organizations. The really remarkable thing that Mazafa and that small community in Indonesia did, and you, you kind of spotted it a little bit when he's talking to that community, is they reclaimed their sense of agency. So, so they took back some of the choice they put took back some of the decisions and that is it sounds like something so small something so small this idea that they started a little school with two rooms but something bigger happened as well and and that was reclaiming this agency when my when my wife and I first met Mazafa it was obvious that and and and, and Hadim and and the others he was working with it was obvious that you know, that they could do something that were highly capable, very intelligent, and they were able to do something. And at that time, they'd been writing very, uh, they'd been trying to contact the UNHCR. We want to do something. We want to have an organization for refugees. We want to work with you to help refugees. Partner with you. Yeah. Partner, you know, Thank but you. yeah, but, <laughs> but, but, but they were getting nowhere. You know, they were getting stonewalled. They were getting nothing. And, and, and we understood that they weren't going to get anywhere, that this was not that the doors of the UNHCR weren't going to open up, that they were too complicated for a big organization like the UNHCR to deal with. And that's why we suggested, why don't you do something for yourself? Why don't you do something? And that's, you know, and that's what they did. And they kind of got together and that was very thoughtful and it was very slow, but they got together and Mazafa, I'd, I'd never, the school had started and it wasn't only when I went to make the film that I saw that scene when Mazaf was talking to the community. I didn't realize why the school was such a success, but as soon as I saw that scene, I realized that he'd seeded that community with ideas early on that they'd spent a lot of time in preparation. So, yeah. so that sense of agency and that sense of ownership and that sense of community is incredibly strong within this within this area, this community in Chisarua. And that's why I think that it's been such a success. That's why it's grown. So through the films and through word of mouth and through the community, that school that Mazafa started, it went to two to 300 students. There's about, there's about up to 30 teachers at that school now, all refugees, all giving their time, all volunteering. And not only that, other refugees around Indonesia saw what was happening and they started their own schools as well. So in Indonesia now there's 10, over 10, 10 to 12 different schools of varying kind of sizes. Some are 300, some are 100, some are 50 students. And there's volunteer refugee teachers teaching at all those schools, at least 150. So in Indonesia, there's nearly 2000 refugee children getting education from approximately 150 volunteer refugee teachers at over 10 schools and it has kind of grown and 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 we don't own those schools actually now we, we start to fundraise a little bit for some of them but they're doing their own thing we didn't make it happen we don't tell them what to do they're doing it and we that if anything the Chisarua Refugee Learning Centre is a is a an example here's what's possible here's what you can do and uh, they went away and did it. So, um, so that you know, that's been remarkable. And and kind of often, if we now we go into the UNHCR and talk to them, and I try and convince them that, that they've got they've got an army at their disposal. They've got twenty five million 
capable individuals who can do things for themselves and uh, they're not we in the West, we like to present them as needy and, and they are needy and they do desperate and they are needy and desperate and they do need help. But we also, at the same time, we have to recognize that they're capable and resilient and able to have agency in their own situation. And that that's the first thing that should be kind of recognized that they're the first actors. Um, they're the first actors, the, yeah, the, the psychosocial, situation Mazaf is talking about, we did eventually get some small funding from the uh, United Nations Human Rights Office and they're paying us to, we're trying to train those teachers to provide psychosocial support for the other refugees because there are no other organisations there. There is no one else, even the UNHCR has not visited Chisaru, I think for four, year, four years. Huh? There is no one else there. So the community has to do it for themselves. and 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 there's a great power in that so i savor uh, every moment being here um for me uh, the experience being in australia i always remember like how i felt being the first day in australia like everything is so organized um, traffic is so organized. We have traffic lights every uh, in every uh, corner and uh, car waves on and red light. I never saw that in my life. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, we, uh, I, I didn't know how to do my tax return. So I, I was fined because I, I arrived in Australia on 25th of June. And then for just for five days being late, uh, I was fined $1,000. And for two years, I didn't know that I am fined. And it's somewhere in my in the website, in, in my account that I'm fined. And that fine 1,000 became 2,000 after two years. <laughs> and oh. then one day my friend told me, man, you are fined. You have to do something with this. And when I dig in, uh, I realized just being late for five days, and without knowing the system, how to do my tax return for five days, I was fined. So that was uh, that was like the first and maybe the biggest. Um, you didn't pay thing. the fine though, did you? No, I didn't no, pay actually. Yeah, and I them. called uh, taxation office. I arrived in Australia just for five days, and how go I got that? So that was resolved. But actually, that was a huge. Um, a lesson for me how systematic and bureaucratic the system is yeah, and how yeah. automatic the system is. So yeah, five yeah. days doesn't matter, you will get the fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, bureaucracy, absolutely. Um, and have you, I, I'm really intrigued actually, so have you continued playing football? Have you engaged with football locally? I know that's a passion. Um, um, I... I, I played for Afghan uh, community team here for a while, then I injured uh, my right knee. So that was at the time I, I was thinking maybe I am getting old, but I do practice, I, I go, but I don't compete. Mm. I love football and Manchester United is my heart because in very bad days, uh, this kept me positive. Yeah, yeah. And there was a lot of positive, there's some good times. Good times for Man United, which we won't we won't go into. And you um, know, I got, I got job through my football football uh, football game. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a lot lot to be thankful I, to for football. Um, yeah, and I tell, I tell my wife I tell my wife uh, football is my first love. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> brilliant. But yeah, it's part just a massive thank you to you both for taking the time and um i'll um you know just want to get from you both what's what's coming next um would be would be really good um for you for you jolian it's more more projects you're working on and a similar focus yeah um you know mazafa and i we kind of did eventually start the charity here so we have a you know a full called Public Benevolent Institution that he and I are kind of co-CEOs. We work back to back on that. So we continue to fundraise, not just for that one school, but we've now started fundraising for four, is it four other schools that we support, uh, their rent and their basic materials and things like that. So Mazaf and I are working on that. Uh, we also, there's another film called Fahanas and the Forgotten People a remarkable young woman, Fahanas, she was 13 the day Mazafa opened the school like that. And she ended up becoming an art teacher. And now she's she's 21, a remarkable uh, young woman who through art has this incredible perspective on her experience. Um, but now she's 21 and wondering if the world's ever gonna give her a chance. So we're working on that project. She has the camera now, the same camera that Hadim used and She's turning it on herself and she sends us uh, little video diaries each kind of week or every couple of weeks about what's happening in the community and how she's feeling. And that's gonna be an incredibly powerful film. So there'll be another film coming in maybe next year sometime. So yeah, we, we need to work with the community and that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Mustafa, um, I imagine being a dad and you, like what Jolyn's just described is going to keep you pretty busy. Um, and uh, I yeah, wish you guys all the luck and um, love to stay connected. And thank you for being part of the Purposey podcast. Oh, thank thanks you so much, much for, for having, having us. us Mark. Really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah. Congratulations. Great, great stuff. Awesome, awesome guys. listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.